I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. I did that as enthusiastically as possible because several of you have written in and said you liked the enthusiastic rendition of our wonderful congressional charter. I'm so glad to be back and so thrilled to welcome you to the final installment in our series on the candidates and the Constitution, where we compare the proposals of Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump to the text and history of the Constitution. But before we do that, a brief uh, plug and plea. We need your help. The podcast team wants your feedback about the show on everything from topics and guests to potential new projects. It'll help us plan for the rest of the fall and the new year. So here's the URL. It's go to bit.ly forward slash we the people podcast, all lowercase, to share your feedback. That's bit.ly forward slash we the people podcast. Okay, we now turn to the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, which guarantees, among other things, the equal protection of the laws. Ratified after the Civil War as part of the nation's second founding, the 14th Amendment now applies to a range of issues at the center of American life, including abortion, birthright citizenship, affirmative action, and more. Both major candidates have addressed these issues, and both a Clinton and a Trump court would approach them very differently. Joining me to discuss the 14th Amendment and the 2016 presidential campaign are two of America's leading scholars of the 14th Amendment. Elizabeth Wydra is president of the Constitutional Accountability Center in Washington, D.C. Earl Maltz is distinguished professor of law at Rutgers School of Law. Uh, Elizabeth is a great partner of the Constitution Center. Uh, We always love our work with CAC, and Earl wrote great explainers for the Constitution Center's interactive constitution with Erwin Chemerinsky on the enforcement clause of the 14th Amendment, so please check that out. Elizabeth, Earl, thank you so much for joining. Thank you for having us, uh, Jeff. Great to be with you. Great. Let us plunge right into a nice, uncontroversial topic, and that is the future of the Constitution and abortion. In the third presidential debate, Secretary Clinton said it was important to have a Supreme Court that will not reverse Roe v. Wade. Uh, Donald Trump, uh, in the third presidential debate, when uh, the moderator asked him, do you want the court to overturn Roe v. Wade, uh, said, well, if that would happen because I'm pro-life and I will be appointing pro-life judges, I would think that would go back to the individual states. And he said, if we put on another two or perhaps three justices, that is really what will happen. That will happen automatically, in my opinion. Um, Elizabeth, uh, tell us what what the consequence of overturning Roe v. Wade would be on a Trump court for abortion rights and how abortion rights might be expanded under a Clinton court. So it's interesting that we are having this debate over abortion rights after having a resounding reaffirmation of Roe versus Wade in the Supreme Court's decision in Whole Woman's Health that just came out last June. Um, And it's interesting to note that that case, there was a clear five justice majority. So even if, for example, a President Trump were able to appoint a justice to fill Justice Scalia's vacant seat, still presumably you would have a court that would split five, four, in favor of Roe versus Wade and abortion rights. Now, the whole women's health case was not about overturning Roe per se. It was about limitations put by states 
on abortion clinics that make it extremely difficult and nearly impossible for women to actually exercise their constitutional right that is protected in, in Roe versus Wade to choose for themselves whether or not to have an abortion. So I think that those kinds of cases might be what we would see initially um, coming up before the court. And I think in a court that had more nominees from a President Clinton, we might see an increased uh, security for those rights, an increased security that not only will the core fundamental right to choose an abortion in Roe versus Wade be respected, but that these attempts to make an end run around those rights by putting limitations on either uh, the timing or the manner in which women can access abortions or restrictions placed on clinics and doctors who perform abortions. In a Clinton court, we might see those being resoundingly rejected in nearly every circumstance, um, whereas we've seen in the Roberts court generally uh, um, a protection for Roe versus Wade, but it's not quite as secure as I think we would see in a Clinton court. Now, of course, Trump has indicated that he is not pro-choice um, in his more recent statements. I know that there is some uh, concern about that amongst conservatives who are um, opposed to abortion, but it does seem as if the judges that he has listed for potential Supreme Court seats um, would be not hostile to the right recognized in Roe versus Wade. And that's, I think, almost even more about a vision of the 14th Amendment's guarantee of equal citizenship for women, um, the rights to liberty that are ensconced in the 14th Amendment, and limiting those perhaps in a way that is out of step with the Constitution's text and history. Thanks so much for that, Elizabeth. Earl, Elizabeth is of course right that uh, a single appointee might not change the balance on Roe, but imagine two or three appointees tell us how the world would look different if Roe were overturned or if abortion rights were expanded, and perhaps also address some of the restrictions that Donald Trump has endorsed, including making the Hyde Amendment permanent, which bans the use of federal funds to pay for abortions, um, as well as endorsing uh, defunding Planned Parenthood and passing a national ban on abortion after 20 weeks. So thanks for thinking us through those possibilities. Well, uh, preliminarily, with respect to all the issues we're going to talk about, I am less certain that Trump appointees would, that is, he has a list that was designed to uh, placate conservatives or people who are uh, pro-life and uh, have, but I'm, I am less certain that they would actually be that way. Uh, so I can start with that. Uh, obviously, I, well, First, um, I think that it is unlikely, unless one had several very conservative justices, that Roe would actually be overruled. That is that I think Elizabeth is quite right that it would be more likely that they would that the justices would simply be um, more hospitable to the idea of uh, restrictions placed on clinics or uh, late-term abortions or things like that. I think that that's, so I think that it's uh, more certain that Hillary Clinton would actually appoint uh, uh, very progressive justices than it is that Donald Trump would appoint traditionally conservative justices. That having been said, even if uh, Roe were overruled, I think we, we would be in a very different world and I don't want to, uh, 
without in any way downplaying the significance that the obstacles that women would face if they would were seeking abortions. I think abortions would be entirely remain entirely legal in many states so that affluent women in particular would have the option of simply traveling to a, to states where abortion was legal. That's not uh, advocating overturning Roe or not. It's simply observing what the situation would be. So that um, those are my basic thoughts about that. I mean, as to whether uh, we could have a different discussion about the uh, text and history of the 14th Amendment and equal citizenship as it relates to abortion, but that would take an entire 45-minute podcast at least. So those are my thoughts about abortion specifically. It would indeed, but since you raise it, this may be a difficult question, but Elizabeth, uh, was Roe correctly decided as a matter of the text and history of the Constitution, and should it be overturned or not? I think there is strong support in the Constitution's text and history for the right of women to choose for themselves whether or not to bear children, whether or not to have a family. You know, obviously, it was in a different context, but when the drafters of the 14th Amendment were concerned about the many evils of slavery, one of the situations they talked about were um, the inability of those who were enslaved to decide whether or not to form families of their own, to stay together as families. Um, obviously, rape was a scourge used by slave owners, slave masters to subjugate women, and there were um, many children who were born uh, um, of those crimes. And so the concern for uh, women to be able to bear children um, of their choice um, and not under the slave power was something that was of concern. You know, again, it was in a different context. I'm not going to pretend that they were talking about, you know, things today, but I think those conversations and the impetus to protect liberty and those intimate choices speak to us very much today. And when you couple that with the very powerful idea of equal citizenship that is expressed in the 14th Amendment and then reaffirmed particularly for women in the 19th Amendment, um, it really shows a constitutional concern for women to be full and equal, realized citizens in this country. Justice Ginsburg has called upon this idea in her opinions that support the right of women to choose abortions for themselves. And I think it's a very powerful ideal, the idea that if one cannot control one's own destiny in this most intimate manner, how can one really be a citizen equal to man? Thank you very much for that. And Earl, in the spirit of debate, I'm going to ask you, was Roe, as an original matter, correctly, de correctly decided uh, as a matter of constitutional text and history? Uh, no. Uh, and with respect to the idea of uh, equal citizenship, I think certainly if we look at the uh, text and, or the history, I think that the some people find the text more Delphic than I do. But if one looks at the history of what the uh, privileges or immunities clause, which was, the, or the other two clauses, but the privileges or immunities clause, which was viewed as the uh, most important guarantor of rights, it was a uh, understood to be a fixed set of rights, even though it was vague and un or unclear at the margins. And I don't think there's much doubt about that. I think that uh, the uh, most striking 
uh, affirm- our discussion of that comes from Jacob Howard, but again, without getting too geeky about this, where he says, well, there are national rights and there are states' rights, rights created as a matter of national citizenship, and rights created as a matter of state citizenship, and the rights created as a matter of national citizenship are uh, a relatively narrow group, mostly economic. Uh, with respect to the 19th Amendment, the 19th, the 19th Amendment was about the right to vote and nothing else. It was not about the right to equal citizenship in any meaningful sense. And uh, so that's the short answer. Uh, the long, uh, with respect to uh, equality between uh, sexes or genders, uh, I uh, they basically didn't believe in that. At the time, the 14th Amendment was drafted, the most of the drafters with the 14th Amendment. Although they did believe that women should have a, again, these, this certain set of rights, which were guaranteed by the Privileges or Immunities Clause. Thank you so much for that very productive debate. Listeners, there's a lot to teach yourself about the original understanding of the Religious or Immunities Clause and the rest of the 14th Amendment. Start, of course, with the Interactive Constitution, but then Google Earl's great uh, scholarship on this, as well as Elizabeth's phenomenal writing, and you will uh, be uh, very well educated indeed. Okay, let us jump from abortion to another uh, uncontroversial question, and that is the future of LGBT rights. In the third presidential debate, uh, Secretary Clinton said, I feel strongly that the Supreme Court needs to, to stand up on behalf of the rights of the LGBT community and emphasize it's important that we not reverse marriage equality. By contrast, Donald Trump, when pressed by Chris Wallace, uh, said that uh, I would strongly consider that, yes, when asked whether he would try to appoint justices to overrule the decision on same-sex marriage. Elizabeth, uh, imagine how a Clinton and a Trump court would differently approach LGBT rights, uh, including not only marriage equality, but also transgender rights, which the Supreme Court has agreed to consider this term. Yes, yeah, so I think that this is a an area that is important, not just with respect to the right to marriage, which has been uh, recognized by the Supreme Court for uh, gay and lesbian couples just on the same footing as for um, heterosexual couples, and that is incredibly important, this right to marry. Again, it, it gets back to some of the original meaning and text and history of the 14th Amendment that we talked about in the abortion context. There was very much this uh, concern for um, couples to be able, um, as they became free after the destruction of slavery through the Civil War and the 13th Amendment, and the 14th Amendment being able to guarantee um, important rights of liberty and choose in terms of choosing whether or not to have a family um, ones of one's own. And I think you, you see that in what Justice Kennedy has pointed to in his marriage decisions, both the liberty that is uh, inherent in the due process part of the 14th Amendment, as well as the equal protection argument that not only is about equal treatment under the law, but ensuring that we don't have any class of citizens to whom we give a badge of inferiority, to whom we relegate to second-class citizens. We just don't do that after the 14th Amendment. That is one of the glorious pieces of progress in our Constitution that was achieved by the 14th Amendment. But it's not just about marriage equality for LGBT 
citizens. It's also about some of these other issues. We've seen um, a lot of activity through the Obama administration, through executive action and agency rulemaking that protects LGBTQ equality, whether it's the definition of sex discrimination under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act that encompasses sexual orientation and gender identity to the Title IX idea of sex discrimination, including anti-LGBTQ discrimination, including discrimination against transgendered students. That case will be going up to the court this term. So marriage is very much at issue, but also these other aspects of equality that are very important to LGBTQ Americans, whether it's being able to be a student and expressing your gender identity or being able to go to work and not get fired because you are in a same-sex marriage. So it's a very big issue that um, you know hasn't been talked about that much by the candidates, um, but I think it is obviously something that is very important for many Americans. Thanks so much for that. Earl, your thoughts on how a Clinton and a Trump court would differently approach issues involving LGBTQ equality uh, and just to put on the table the precise issue that the court agreed to hear in the Gavin and Gloucester County case. It's uh, the legality of the federal government's view that the federal law banning sex bias in federally funded education programs, that's Title IX, also forbids discrimination based on gender identity. How would Trump and Clinton justices differently approach that question as well as others? Well, just one preliminary point on a on a big whatever of mine, which is that there is no such thing as gay and lesbian marriage. There's only same sex marriage, and that's a different thing. So, but that's a whole separate. That's another long conversation. Uh, I think it's uh, fairly clear that uh, certainly, again, assuming that a tr- that Trump appointed uh, conservative justices, that is justices who generally accept the position that that most conservatives accept, that I think there would would probably be a big difference with respect to uh, transgender issues, uh, because that is where there is this huge divide right now. Uh, That is that I think that Trump justices would be uh, less likely or much less likely to uh, embrace the idea of uh, that gender identity is determined not by, uh, uh, how shall I say it, chromosomal genetics, is that I'm trying to think of the right word, but rather by uh, personal, and I'm trying not to be pejorative here, uh, by by strong personal instinct rather than uh, chromosomal genetics, uh, and that's simply a big divide. And with respect to uh, the the other thing that I would say, with so in that sense, I think it's clear that a Trump court would be uh, less uh, receptive to transgender arguments. Now, also sliding back to the issue that about original meaning and uh, same-sex marriage. I, it's hard to imagine uh, the, uh, that anyone who voted for the 14th Amendment in 
1866 or who thought about the 14th Amendment in 1866 or 1868 would have had uh, any, would have, they would have looked at you like you were, what are you talking about when you were talking about same-sex marriage and the idea that the 14th Amendment might guarantee a right to same-sex marriage? But again, that's just a matter of, about original meaning. And I don't think anybody really thinks that original meaning is, uh, would support Obergefell. So I just want to respond to that just because Elizabeth suggested that. Well, you know, just in, in the spirit of my rogue question, Elizabeth, CAC files powerful briefs arguing that uh, cases like Obergefell are consistent with uh, text and history as originally understood. So why don't you give us the... The, the brief version of why that's the case, and then Earl can can rebut it. Absolutely. And, you know, CAC filed briefs in the Supreme Court and the lower court cases dealing with marriage equality, making the original meaning argument. I would also point out that the Cato Institute, a conservative libertarian organization, also filed an original meaning brief supporting the result in Obergefell. So uh, far from people not thinking that as a matter of original meaning, marriage equality is something that is constitutionally compelled. There are people from across the ideological spectrum who think the original meaning of the Constitution and its words protect marriage equality for all Americans, gay or straight. And I think that when you look at the way that original meaning analysis has been done uh, by most scholars, generally right and left, it's not so much whether you, you know, put on your old-fashioned wig and think about, you know, would the drafters of this amendment have thought that it applied to this particular situation that occurs in modern times? You know, um, this was famously kind of parodied in the video games First Amendment case, where they said, you know, would would James Madison have thought about uh, video game violence? That's not generally how it works. Um, you looked at starting with the words, of course, and there I think is a very powerful argument because you see the words equal and apply to all persons. And gay and lesbian Americans are persons just like uh, straight persons are protected under the Constitution. And then you look at what rights were understood by the drafters of the amendment to be given to all persons equally. And it was very clear when you look at the debates that occurred in uh, the Joint Committee on Reconstruction in the, on the floor of Congress when they were debating the amendment, that the right uh, that had previously been denied to enslaved persons to marry the person of one's own choosing was something that was important and was contemplated to be protected in that panoply of rights that were to, under the words of the 14th Amendment, apply equally to all persons. So do I think that if you'd asked a drafter of the 14th Amendment whether they were thinking in their minds of same-sex marriage? Well, to be honest, I don't know, but I can't point to anything that says they were thinking of gay and lesbians and Americans when they were passing that amendment, when they were drafting it. I think when you take the idea in the powerful words presented by the 14th Amendment that equality applies to all persons, persons obviously including Americans who are heterosexual as well as gay and lesbian Americans, and the importance of the right to marry the person of one's own choosing, which, as we saw in the debates, uh, the drafters of the 14th Amendment were concerned about how it had been denied to enslaved persons. There's a very powerful argument for saying that the Obergefell marriage equality decision comports with the Constitution's text and history, and it's an argument that has been made by scholars from across the ideological spectrum. 
Thanks so much for that. Earl, what is your response to Elizabeth's claim that uh, uh, an originalist should look not just at the framers' particular uh, concept of equality, to use Ronald Dworkin's uh, notion, but their broader conception of equality? And how much does the Obergefell decision depend on Justice Kennedy's holding that moral disapproval is not a legitimate basis for laws under the Equal Protection Clause? Hmm. Well, first, I would repeat something that I said before, which is that the, in fact, prior to Obergefell, uh, gay and lesbian Americans were treated precisely the same as straight Americans with respect to the right to marry. That is, a gay American could marry and did. Gay Americans did, in fact, marry people of other genders, of opposite genders. Uh, with respect to marriage, oh, I'm... Uh, well, with respect to Justice Kennedy, I think that uh, statement is just flat wrong. Um, and the use of the answer of, and the example I would use is, what about laws prohibiting torture of animals? So the idea that moral disapproval can't, that laws based on moral disapprovals are unconstitutional is just, well, I would think that that was, that's just flat wrong, are unconstitutional automatically, it's flat wrong. The argument that uh, Elizabeth's argument that the right to marry the person of one's choice is implicit in the idea of uh, a right to, quote, marry generally, uh, not meaning to equate uh, uh, same-sex marriage with polygamy in moral terms or anything like that. Uh, the point is that the idea of marriage, which was the idea that was deeply ingrained in everything that the uh, drafters of the 14th Amendment believed about that uh, presupposes some sort of kind of outside limitations on the idea. That is, what does the right to marry mean? Is it marry one person? And, and for example, the, uh, the Republican Party famously talked about, what was it, the twin pillars of barbarism, uh, polygamy, and slavery. Uh, the point being that the right to marry is okay, so it's about one person, so it just as well it can be about uh, one person of another gender. And that is so deeply ingrained in the definition of marriage that they understood that that's what they're talking about. Now, about the question about being across the political spectrum, uh, uh, I think that uh, the Cato Institute and traditional conservatives are about as far apart as uh, traditional conservatives and uh, Hillary Clinton. So talking about across the, yes, uh, it's true that the Cato Institute believes in same-sex marriage, but that's not the same thing as saying traditional conservatives believed in same-sex marriage. And so that would be, again, so the idea, the, it's, it's a definitional question about what marriage is, which was uh, at the core of what they were talking about when they were talking about a right to marry in the discussions of the 14th Amendment. Thank you very much for that. All right, we, we have some other really important questions to take up, and uh, the next one is birthright citizenship, one on which both of you have written important work. Uh, Donald Trump has called for an end to birthright citizenship, uh, though he's claimed that this could be done either with an act of Congress or even without one by executive action. Other commentators say this would require a constitutional amendment, uh, whereas Hillary Clinton has said the idea that we would amend our Constitution to do away with citizenship by birth is absolutely the wrong direction to go in. Elizabeth, would 
an end to birthright citizenship of the kind that Trump has proposed require a constitutional amendment or not? I think it would. If you look at the birthright citizenship clause in the 14th Amendment, part of the Constitution that was added to undo the terrible wrong of the Supreme Court and Dred Scott when the court in that case said that persons of African descent could not be citizens under the Constitution, we then as a nation fought a war, at least in part, to repudiate that terrible error. And then we placed in the Constitution the right that all people born on U.S. soil, regardless of race, color, or parental origin, would be citizens at birth and would be equally Americans as all other people born on U.S. soil. That is not just the original meaning of the birthright citizenship clause. And in fact, when you look at the 1866 debates, um, this question was specifically debated whether or not having the birthright citizenship provision in the Constitution would have the effect of naturalizing immigrant children, something that, or the children of immigrants, I should say, something that Trump has raised as a reason to get rid of birthright citizenship. And uh, Senator Lyman Trumbull, who was a key proponent, proponent of the citizenship clause, replied that it would undoubtedly make clear that the children of such immigrants would be birthright citizens just as much as uh, the child of a, a European person who had been in the U.S. for uh, a longer period of time. It's also an interpretation of the Constitution that has been accepted by the Supreme Court. Um, famously, in the Wong Kim Art case, the Supreme Court said that uh, the birthright citizenship clause applied to children of non-citizens. And I think not only is it something that is a long-standing view of the Constitution and is entrenched in Supreme Court precedent, it's also a key question of core American values. You know, it's very much the idea of the American dream that no matter who your parents are, that each American will be judged by his or her deeds. So whether your parents came over on the Mayflower or immigrated here to build a, bigger, a better life for their children just more recently, the idea is that if you are born on American soil, our Constitution says that you are a citizenship at birth equal to any other citizen born here. It's, I think, basically the foundation of the American dream and really the embodiment of the Declaration of Independence in our Constitution. Thanks so much for that. Earl, you have many important works on uh, citizenship that I'd love our uh, listeners to check out. Would Trump's proposal to end birthright citizenship require a constitutional amendment or not? Uh, I think it probably would. Uh, although the, the only thing that I could add about, well, for one thing, the answer is yes by the text. And I think it would be hard to find a majority of justices who are willing to overrule the Wong Kim Ark. Uh, my only observation about that as, a, as an original matter, if I didn't have Wong Kim Ark, was that with respect to federal law, there was no such thing as an undocumented alien in 1866, that there were no federal restrictions on immigration. So that would be the only caveat. But I think the text pretty clearly says born or naturalized. And again, if you, I don't think you're going to get Wong Kim Ark overruled. So you would have to have a constitutional amendment. And I can't imagine that getting, well, I can almost imagine a scenario, although not any time in the near future, where such an amendment might get through Congress. But it's hard to imagine that such an amendment would, would be uh, ratified by the states.
just one more quick beat. Should was Wong Kim Ark incorrect as a matter of original understanding? And if it wasn't, then what's the argument by those scholars who say that a constitutional amendment is not necessary? Well, again, the only argument about Wong Kim Ark being incorrect would be that 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 would be based on this problem that there were no such things as federal undocumented aliens for federal law in 1866. So that uh, uh, when they were talking about born or naturalized, that the analogy would be to perhaps the uh, uh, children of uh, ambassadors or whatever that uh, or something like that, because the the parent was an undocumented alien, they should be considered in some sense not present in terms of the 14th Amendment. And for that reason, their children would be not present. But I think that's a hard argument to make as a matter of text, but that would be the only argument that you could make. Excellent. Well, I'm going to ask you about one more topic and then ask you to think forward uh, 20 years about a Trump or a Clinton court. And our final topic is affirmative action. After the decision in Fisher versus University of Texas, Secretary Clinton released a statement saying the Supreme Court decision was a win for all Americans by allowing universities to continue to make diversity and inclusion central goals of their admissions processes. Uh, Donald Trump uh, in 2015 said that he was fine with affirmative action for now, but we have it. It's there, but it's coming to a time where maybe we won't need it. That would be a wonderful thing. I don't think we need it so much anymore. Uh, Nevertheless, uh, Elizabeth, is it fair to assume that uh, Trump justices, two or three Trump justices, might severely restrict affirmative action on the principle that the Constitution is colorblind and that Clinton justices would be much more permissive toward affirmative action on the grounds that the Constitution is not colorblind. I think it's an interesting question about the difference between a Trump justice or a Clinton-nominated justice on the issue of racial equality, because what we've seen from perhaps Chief Justice Roberts is the best example is on some conservatives' part, basically an unwillingness to attack head-on the systemic racism that is a legacy of slavery and Jim Crow laws, instead preferring to sort of revert to platitudes about stopping discrimination um, simply by wishing it away. And But we've also seen, I think, evolution from Justice Kennedy, who was nominated by a Republican president in his Fair Housing Act decision from the previous term and then his most recent decision in the affirmative action case, recognizing a little bit more the complexities of race in America today. And I think that it's unclear whether we would get a justice who is more like Roberts or perhaps more like Kennedy from the list that Trump might um, put forth. Certainly, Secretary Clinton has um, spoken to the realities of race in America in a way that is different from Trump and would seem to recognize that there is still very much work to be done to make the sweeping guarantees of equality and justice for all in our Constitution a reality for all Americans, particularly people of color in this country. And that's true whether it's in the classroom, in the courtroom when getting pulled over by a police officer or in the ballot box. So I think it's much more likely that you might have uh, a progressive nominee who would be more sympathetic to the realities and lingering consequences of systemic racism, both 
with respect to affirmative action and education, but also with respect to the criminal justice system, the housing system, the financial system, uh, as well as voting rights. Thanks so much for that. Earl, your thoughts on the difference between a Trump and Clinton court with respect to affirmative action and a colorblind constitution more generally? Well, uh, I think that as Elizabeth has just suggested, it would depend upon how, uh, I suppose the question would be carefully, one would choose their justice, right? I mean, Justice Kennedy was not, uh, if again, assuming that Trump was committed to an idea, the idea that he wanted to choose justices who would uh, almost exclusively adopt positions that would be, that are associated with the sort of uh, basic conservatism today, then I'm sure he could find them. But if he's not looking, I mean, Kennedy was never that justice. Uh, and so that it would depend upon that. Um, so I, he could find justices who would basically outlaw affirmative action and could be depended upon to outlaw affirmative action for the foreseeable future. The question is, would he want to? Is that his goal? Uh, that's the only thing I have. You know, uh, I could find three or four people right now if he asked me. Uh, he wouldn't ask me, but and I'm not sure I would. So that's that's the only thing that I have to say about that. Thank you very much for those answers. All right, Elizabeth and Earl, it is now time for some constitutional futurism. And both of you have been so thoughtful in really helping us project ourselves forward uh, 20 years and imagining how constitutional law and the Constitution in general would look differently under a Trump and Clinton court. Um, and that's what I'd like you to do now. Imagine that it is uh, 20... Um, uh, 36, and uh, Trump and Clinton justices, maybe three justices each, have been on the court for uh, 20 years. In what particular areas might the Constitution be transformed? Elizabeth. Well, we have never in my lifetime had a Supreme Court with anything other than a conservative-dominated majority. So the idea of a potentially progressive majority in the Supreme Court is something that I've never experienced before in my lifetime. But what I have had the experience of is living under this Constitution, reading it, studying it, believing in it. And our Constitution is a remarkably progressive document. It was drafted by revolutionaries in the 18th century and only made more progressive as we the people over time has amended it, have amended it to become more inclusive, more equal, more just by bringing in people who were denied the promise of the Constitution at its founding, particularly women and people of color, and making sure through amendments like the poll tax amendment that people of all socioeconomic statuses are full citizens in this country. So I think the real question for me is what we might see in terms of how this constitutional arc of progress is interpreted by the Supreme Court if we had a progressive majority for the first time in my lifetime on the court. And I think that might be clear in access to courts cases. We've seen the Roberts Court close the courthouse door more and more to individuals who are seeking justice, whether it's because of corporate wrongdoing. Um, and instead, we've seen the Roberts Court be very pro-corporate. So I think we might see more of a return to 
um, ensuring that the Constitution's protections are um, open and can be vindicated by all in court um, and might see more of a focus on ensuring access to justice for the little guy against the big guy, which uh, the Roberts Court has not been so keen on. I think also um, a recognition of the realities of race in America, particularly in criminal justice decisions. Um, we might even see something that leads the court to say that the death penalty cannot be administered in a way that is consistent with our guarantees of equality um, and due process, particularly when you look at the disparity um, in imprisonment and sentencing for people of color. Um, I think also the idea that equal citizenship is a full concept that includes the right to make decisions um, for oneself, regardless of race, gender, socioeconomic status, and to get back to our first question about abortion. Um, you know, when Earl mentioned that if we cut back on Roe, it might not be a problem for affluent Americans. Well, I think that um, in a progressive majority court, we might see more of and uh, focus on ensuring that rights can actually be enjoyed by all Americans. So ensuring that it is not just the wealthy or the privileged who get to be full and equal citizens in our country, but that all Americans are entitled to that guarantee and can actually enjoy it in their daily lives. Thank you so much for that, Elizabeth Earl, because Elizabeth imagined what a Clinton court might look like in 2036. I'd like you to imagine what a Trump court might look like in 2036 and how the Constitution might be transformed. Well, um, again, always assuming that Trump decided to appoint truly conservative justices, uh, I think that there would be more of an emphasis on uh, states' rights uh, that it, or limitations on federal power. I think that there might be, there would be almost certainly more kinds of guarantees of economic rights, not of the sort that Elizabeth was talking about, but rather things about freedom of contract, uh, uh, protections against uh, eminent domain, uh, property rights generally. Um, I think those things would be uh, become more important uh, or could become more important. Uh, I think that the whole commercial speech area would it can, can continue to expand. Ironically, as I know, Jeff, you're well aware, that was something that was started by progressives and has been sort of turned against progressives lately under the uh, more conservative courts. So I think those are the things that would be more likely uh, to happen. I do think that uh, affirmative action would be likely to be outlawed. Uh, let me see what, trying to think of some other things. Uh, those uh, those are the things that come to mind immediately. Uh, oh, the, oh, the other thing that we haven't talked about is I think that there would be uh, more protection for conservative Christians in particular would be a likely thing. Uh, situations like uh, the Hobby Lobby kind of thing could be, could be uh, constitutionalized. 
Thank you very much, uh, Earl and Elizabeth, for those very thoughtful uh, exercises in constitutional futurism. It is time for closing arguments, not only in this excellent podcast, but for our entire thrilling series on the candidates and the Constitution. So as crisply and uh, concisely as possible, uh, Elizabeth and Earl, please tell us why this 2016 election is important for the future of the Constitution. Elizabeth. So I'm not going to uh, advocate for one candidate or another. I'm not going to tell the listeners who to vote for. Um, I am going to tell you to absolutely go out and vote. It is a right that people have given uh, their lives for um, and that many people have fought for. So uh, no matter who you cast your ballot for, please go vote. Um, I think more broadly, there is a national debate going on right now about some of our most core fundamental values a debate that's going on about the worth and keeping faith with some of our most fundamental American principles as expressed in our constitution. And I think perhaps very majestically expressed in the 14th amendment's guarantee of equality, whether we will judge people based on their religion, whether we will judge people based on uh, whether their parents um, uh, came here last week or came over on the Mayflower whether we will ensure that liberty is something that is enjoyed by all rather than just uh, those who can afford um, the best justice that it, that it can be bought. So I think there are some very important American principles at stake here um, that people should be thinking about um, and should be thinking about when they go and fulfill their duty as citizens to vote in our democracy, which I encourage everyone to do. Thank you so much, uh, Elizabeth Wadra. Uh, Earl Maltz, why is the 2016 election important for the future of the Constitution? Well, uh, in addition to uh, many of the things that we've already discussed, there's something that occurred to me that while Elizabeth was talking that we haven't really discussed. I think what's really at stake here is whether a lot of these decisions are going to be made at the federal level or at the state level. Now, now that's not 100% true. That, for example, the uh, conservative justices would be likely to, for example, outlaw uh, affirmative action nationally. But in many cases, the question is not there. It's not only that there's a national debate, it's a debate between people of different sections with different values. And so one of the issues in terms of the constitutional order, which is very important, is whether uh, certain a lot of decisions are going to be made at the national level with respect to, on one side or the other of the uh, about one way or another, or whether it will simply be left to the people at the state level to make those decisions. And I think that in general, although not universally, it's probably true, it's more likely to be true that more decisions will be made at the national level if a group of progressive justices are chosen than if the if a group of more conservative justices are chosen. Again, it's not universally true, but in general, I think that's true. Thank you so much, Earl Maltz and Elizabeth Wydra, for truly thoughtful, provocative, and illuminating reflections on the stakes of the 2016 election for the future of the Constitution. This is the final of our seven-episode series on the candidates and the Constitution. We hope you found it helpful in educating yourselves about the constitutional stake in the election and that it has provoked you to engage in further 
constitutional self-education. So thank you so much for joining us. Next week, uh, we will return after the 2016 election, and we will talk about the day after, about what the new president uh, will do for the constitutions, uh, prospects for a Supreme Court nomination, and other crucial constitutional issues facing the nation. Until then, Earl Maltz, Elizabeth Wydra, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Jeff. Thank you for having us, Jeff. Today's show was engineered by Jason Gregory and produced by Nicandro Iannacci. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and Tom Donnelly. Get the latest constitutional news and continue the conversation on Facebook and Twitter using at ConstitutionCTR. We want to know what you think of the podcast. Email us at editor at ConstitutionCenter.org or me, Jay Rosen, at ConstitutionCenter.org. Please subscribe to We the People and our companion podcast live at America's Town Hall on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. We the People is a member of Slate's Panoply Network. Check out the full roster at panoply.fm. And finally, despite our congressional charter, this is important. The National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support, and we rely on the generosity of people around the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional debate and education. Ladies and gentlemen, in these polarized times, that mission is more important than ever. Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.